Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hopcast. It is episode 119. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Crime. Mystery. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. And uh, we are delighted with our guest this week. We are delighted with our guest this week. Our guest this week was, is, sorry, Jude Hayland. Yes, who joined us from her home in Winchester. Jude is a novelist. She has uh, an epic background in writing short fiction for the magazine trade yes. in the UK. And she's also a creative um, writing teacher. So there are loads and loads of things to, to get from She knows a lot about writing, doesn't she? Yeah, it was brilliant. Uh, we loved it. And again... You know, we could have spoken for hours, but <laughs> for the benefit of the podcast, we didn't. But uh, no, we're really looking forward to speaking to Jude a little later. So thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, if you're new to what we do, well, we run a book, uh, a book company. We run a publishing services company called ArchPub. And we talk about the warts and all aspects of publishing. And we also reflect on the week's publishing news. And you have curated this week's news. <laughs> I love that. It makes it sound very posh. It does. Um, yeah, so the first thing I think is worth talking about is um, from the London Book Fair. Mm. And as you know, I went last week or the week before, whenever it was. <laughs> and one of the things I complained about while I was there was lack of chairs. Unless you have a meeting, there's nowhere to sit. However, there was an article in the, in the bookseller this week that not only for the people like me who um, I did have a couple of meetings, but except for those times, but actually there were people who had arranged meetings and there weren't enough chairs. They were having meetings on the stairs. Mm. So imagine you're a publisher and you, you book a space with a t- table and a certain number of chairs, but actually you might have more than one of your staff having a meeting at the same time yeah. and fighting for the chairs. And I actually did witness this a little bit. So... One of the meetings I had, um, the person I met had a table and two chairs. And she said to me, I just need to check that the table's free before we sit down. And it was, thank God, because I needed to sit down at that point. But that's the sort of thing that people have been complaining about. They're saying, you know, they're inviting people over from abroad to come to the London Book Fair. And it's embarrassing to say. Absolutely. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. It is embarrassing. And if you think about what you pay for the ticket, so... You know, it's £75 mm. for an attendant. Oh, uh, sorry, the door has just gone. And the delivery is made and we can continue the podcast. We did say it would be warts and all. And you don't get much more warty than Amazon arriving with weeding tools for the back garden. I was going to say, as long as it's not wart cream. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, so we were talking about London Book Fair. You pay £75 plus yeah. f- to attend. 
and you've got nowhere to sit. No, and the organisers of the fair did respond on this and they said there are renovations going on at Olympia at the moment and it's difficult, they've got space issues and they're going to address the issue for future years. Well, it's been an issue all the time we've been going. Yes, it's always been an issue, hasn't it? It really has. And, uh, you know, it's just really unsightly to have, you know, people taking refuge and leaning against wall, you know, sitting against walls. Well, we've sat on the floor. And this this time I ate my sandwich on the floor. Yeah. I know that they charge for chairs, effectively, you know, if you've got a stand or whatever, you know, you, you have to rent your chairs. But it seems, it just seems wrong. Mm. And of course, the advantage for the big book companies who have these sprawling great stands with loads of meeting desks and coffee provided and catering and all that sort of thing is that they really look impressive <laughs> oh i know you just look at penguin random house and it is a village basically yeah, in the is. middle of the, <laughs> the arena well okay so lbf um some things to improve for next year um you know let's hope they do it but actually on that theme of venues letting you down um or events i you know I, i've written to the AO Arena in Manchester, where I attended an event this week, and you know they shut the toilets before the thing had finished. Humph! It was just ridiculous. There were security and barriers and all sorts, shutting all the toilets. This is an arena that usually seats something like 18,000 people. Uh, there weren't as many in for this event in particular. Uh, it was more about 10,000, but still 10,000 of us left without the opportunity to go to the loo before we hit the streets. That's We'd, a lot of liquid. Yeah, I was very, 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 very angry at the time and my son had to put me away <laughs> it was embarrassing anyway let's um let's move on to our next story yeah so i tweeted about this in the week but i think it's worth talking about as well um it's a in the bookseller again it was a survey um of debut authors asking about their experience of publishing uh, you know their sort of first experience of publishing um it's quite a small pool of people but it's still interesting how many how many people 108 people responded so that is quite small yeah and they came from a variety of backgrounds you know sort of the big five as well as small independent presses um but over half said that they felt that the experience was negative as opposed to positive yeah they all i mean you know you would go into it with a positive attitude of course so that is quite worrying i think um they talk about uh, expectations of a launch party. Uh, one person said that um, uh, if a launch party was mentioned at all, um, they were expected to organise it themselves and the publisher may offer to give them some money towards wine. Um, so I'm not quite sure what they were expecting there. Because um, in the olden days, right, we're talking when yeah. I worked at OUP, we did have launch parties and even then it tended to be a collaboration in terms of the author might find the venue and they might, and they might pay for the venue and then the publisher would pay for all the food and alcohol. Mm. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, um, even less so. Um, and the, these debut authors are sort of saying how surprised they are, how lack of, how little support they got for launches. Um, also communication was cited as an issue. Mm. Um, one person even saying, they felt there was gaslighting and fake conversations coming from their publisher. You know, like um, they would ask them something and then instead of telling them the truth, they would make them feel like they were um, being a bit stupid, you know, asking the question or not quite telling the truth on the answer. And I hope that's not the case with us. (laughs) No, I don't think it is. But, you know, it's always a, it's a difficult relationship 
you know, the, the initial thrill of, of being signed is understandable. But I think that and I saw an article, a wider sort of newspaper article about following up this survey saying essentially, look, authors have a rose-tinted view of how it's going to be propagated by Hollywood and drama. Yes, yeah. So when there's in in, a, in any film where there's an author, oh yeah, there's always a book. They launch. have a tour, don't they, around Europe yeah, and things like that, and <laughs> all of that. You know, so I think there's unrealistic expectations as to what what's involved. But I do think that one of the things that we try to differentiate ourselves on, and it's not easy to be consistent about this, is to be more collaborative, certainly more honest and open about where things stand compared to say other publishers but you know it still boils down to this is that you know uh, there's a new book out actually and i can't remember who it's by I'll, I'll try and look it up for the second half of the show that is basically saying look you the only person who can market your book is the author themselves mm. in the current market it, you know you are the, the biggest selling point and you need to get used to the idea that you're going to have to spend more time doing that and putting more work than you did to write the book and now, that's not necessarily a fair way of putting it, but that is the cold reality, particularly around the big five, who will only spend a certain amount of money on a certain very small number of books, and the rest of them uh, sink or swim. Sink by or the swim, exactly, you know, yeah. You know, as, as we heard uh, a few weeks ago, the average spend on a HarperCollins mid-list or low-list title in terms of advertising is £200, which is essentially someone sending out a press release. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, uh, if that, actually, yeah. You know that might be that actually might just be sending ten review copies out, yeah, uh, because... and that is basically two. That is two hundred quid. You know, you put your postage together and the cost of printing the books and whatever. You know, I have to say ten copies, twenty copies, say. But you know, that is the cold reality, and I think that in many ways, you know, we send publishing proposals. We have done this week. And we're, we're speaking to some authors who went through our latest round of submissions, and I've been reading some more. Part of me thinks perhaps we should be a little bit more. Uh, you know, rather than this is what we aspire to do, actually say this is the cold reality, <laughs> you know. And uh, But it's it's really difficult because there is a thrill. It's a lifetime achievement for many, many people to get published. But I, I was listening to, or reading uh, another article which featured um, another independent publisher who was talking about this issue. And he was saying, Basically, I ask my authors, what did they write the book to achieve? What was their aim? And very few of them will ever say, oh, I want to be a bestseller, because mm -hmm. that's kind of very, very, you know, it's a rarity rather than a guarantee. They will say, oh, I want to get my story out there. I wanted to hear, get my voice heard. Well, you've achieved that by getting published. Yeah. Beyond that, you know, there isn't the chauffeur-driven limo. There's not going to be the big splash book launch for most you know apart from the top one percent of authors if that and i bet ian rankin doesn't bother doing them anymore he does a book tour but i bet there isn't a launch party for each of his books so you know it is a lot tougher because there isn't the money in the publishing at the moment and the margin to be able to afford these things i think actually it was john barton from vertebrate publishing talking to uh, on the joe podcast, penn yeah. yeah who's been a guest on of ours uh briefly lbf last year so uh, but he he that was something he he there was a they had a good section in that interview about how do you handle new 
first-time authors and what messages do you need to pass on to them? Mm. And I think it's fair. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think that the the most interesting comment from one of these uh, one of the people surveyed was that she had a book published um, which was about some trauma that she went through and she was surprised that her publisher didn't pay for her therapy so (laughs) yeah okay now that really is delusional that's a little bit too far isn't it perhaps that's not the right word for somebody who's suffered mental uh, you know issues over some trauma they've suffered but let's be honest that is just not realistic (laughs) <laughs> let's put it that way interesting yes. um well no that's an it's a valuable survey um i shall look up the name of that book that has just come out that talks about you know the importance of authors recognizing they're in charge of their own marketing that's not what we do here but it's still really hard to make an impression and i think the other thing i wanted to mention was that look we're, we're going into a new era of publishing and i was listening to another podcast again it was joanna pens where she's just come back from the 20 books to 50k conference that was held in Seville about two weeks ago. And there, the person organizing it, Michael Andalay, who's very well known in indie publishing circles, has launched his publishing company and he's published 350 books last year and he wants to publish 700 this year. (laughs) Then he changed it with ChatGPT version 4 coming out. He's now decided that using AI writing tools, his aim is for his publishing company to publish 10 thousand books this year 10,000 books using AI generated plots and writing I don't understand unless he's got a staff of about 200 people how do they how do they manage the logistics of just getting them on a platform to sell no there is that there is that and that that is obviously I mean he may have just been saying it to be provocative uh, but he doesn't do anything by halves he's made a lot of money from independent publishing and, and you know, I can see why people think, you know, if it's, if they're selling mediocre books as it is, and I would say a lot of those books coming out from that sort of stable are mediocre, but people buy them because they're marketed well, right? Mm. And they're right on genre, which is also something that is, uh, you know, a growing reality is that if if you really nail the beats of a certain genre – and meet expectations, you can find an audience for it. Yeah, because people like the familiarity of... Absolutely. So you teach the algorithm, the AI algorithms, what the genre is, what the tropes are. You give, you feed in a certain amount of information about the type of characters and the scenario, and you let it do the work. Okay. And then you go in and polish it. And it can take... Uh, he was saying that it takes that process, the way they've got it now, is they can write... 80,000 words, which is ready for editing in three hours. I have a question there. Yes. Right. So when you fall in love with the series, mm-hmm. right? Yep. You also fall a little bit in love with the author, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, And then yeah. you follow them on social well, media. But there's no author in this case. Well, yeah, but they'll fabricate one. I mean, look, at you know, it's the same with ghostwriting. You're often reading something which is supposedly by somebody and it's written by somebody else. It's the same process. Yes, it's but, just that you take the human element or reduce the human element hugely. I I agree with that. I accept that. But in the genres that we work in, the readers tend to want to meet and know the authors. I, look, I don't dispute that, but I'm sure they could... Just as Vladimir Putin has several people who walk around pretending to be him, <laughs> especially if he wants to go to the battlefront, it's, somebody, it's a body double. So you're saying that there's, that there's a 
very, you, you, very vague possibility. I accept that. But J.D. Kirk, who we interviewed, wasn't really a person. No, I'm not <laughs> saying that. But I'm saying that you could easily get somebody to pose as that person. Oh, yeah. If that was important. But let's be honest, you know, the face, face-to-face interface with, with readers isn't that often. It's not everybody gets invited to a festival to talk about their work. And, you know, there's only certain names in the UK and uh, that that have that guaranteed following that people want to hear from. And that's why they're always the ones booked for every festival. If they can get hold of Anne Cleves, they get Anne Cleves. Yeah, okay. Or Ian Rankin or Val McDermott, who turns up to everything, pretty much. Um, you know, because they do have followings. Uh, so... <laughs> I would argue that we are entering a new phase. And within that, going back to the original point, which is how do debut authors feel they're being handled? You're going in now, if you're a debut author, in the next two years into a world where there are people like Michael Anderley, who has the money and the nous to flood the market with books to a large degree generated by computers and then the rest of it, the packaging, the marketing in terms of, you know, uh, generating uh, Facebook ads and Amazon or whatever it might be. Um, and once once something, you know, they, they stick out there, start selling. This is what we'll see is that you, you'll be able to get a weekly, cof- you know, weekly book from said invented author. Mm. Um, and if you're into romance or certain types of crime novel. That will suit you down to the ground. No waiting six months for the next one. If You know, that's when an author's writing quickly. But isn't that as bad as, like, in space TV when they eat little cubes of dinner? Look, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm not defending it. I'm just trying to present the forthcoming potential reality of publishing in the next two to three years, as I understand it. And I, and I what I've been looking across. It's the same argument I would make about the difference between human narration and AI narration. But the fact is that it'll get more and more sophisticated and very hard to d- distinguish. And I think non-fiction narration is going to be a thing of the past for humans to do. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that... that you know, you really have mean. to be... And I think if you're a narrator who can just narrate um, with very few voices, again, is going to be... They're the people most in jeopardy. Yeah, definitely. That's without Because if you can't create distinctive characters with your voice... No, you're easily replaced by AI. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something I work very hard at and, you know, continue to add to my portfolio of things I can do. But, you know, basically I create characters that are distinctive from each other. And that's very important. I think that is a differential that AI is going to struggle until such time as they've got enough AI voices and they say to ourselves, oh, this Scots character is from the east coast of Scotland, from wherever, we'll stick in this AI to cover that thing. And then, you know, you could do a multiple AI production. How about this podcast, though? Do you think eventually that we could just say, we'll have an Adrian and we'll have a Rebecca and they're going to ha- talk about these news items? I love that. So we don't have to bother with this and argue over what's going into the programme and, and fall out with each other. Yeah, we just press buttons and bingo. It could happen. I don't think there's necessarily the big commercial drive towards that yet, <laughs> but we'll see. Listen, we've um, we've <laughs> we've taken enough of your time with uh, one of our heated debates. Oh, we have many. <laughs> we do. Yeah, we just don't get on anymore. No, we're falling out at the moment quite a lot. Actually. We are. 
Okay, I'm going to give you the job of introducing our guest. I think it's about time we talk to Jude Hayland, don't you? You can respond to that. Oh, I can. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes, we can. Yeah, well, as we mentioned, uh, Jude is a veteran of the uh, women's magazine market in the UK, 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, and then is now uh, and now a novelist, and also she's been a creative teaching uh, writing teacher for many years as well. And so there's so many things to go at here, from going from short form three thousand word stories uh, with a particular formula to longer form novels. I think it was a fascinating interview. So let's talk to jo- Jude Hayland. What a great pleasure it is to speak to Jude Hayland. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It really is a pleasure, and um, we we can cover all sorts of aspects but I really want to start with your uh, career writing for women's magazines because mm. it's a fascinating world and the first thing you know this is we're talking about some years ago now but this was quite a, a, a vibrant market uh, for for writers writing short stories for the likes of I don't know Bella uh, women's yeah. own that kind of thing yeah how did you fall into that did you was it something you set out to do I really did fall into it in a way. Um, I first started to write nonfiction, just sort of um, amusing. I thought they were amusing, lighthearted articles. And uh, the very first one I randomly sent off at the age, tender age of 19 to Brides magazine, all about my sister's wedding. Um, And it was accepted. And I was so amazed. I was waiting for the rejection and the acceptance came. Then I thought, well, of course, this is easy. Well, three le- years later, when well, my second piece got accepted, I realised it wasn't quite so easy. It really was beginner's luck. Um, so this went on for two or three years writing nonfiction. And then I started, I was doing a degree and training to teach English. And I started teaching English. And one day I gave my class a story to write. And I was really envious of them. I thought, I want to write stories. I want to write fiction. So I just started and again, very randomly started sending them off to women's magazines. And at the beginning was reasonably successful. There were so many that we're talking sort of 1980s when the world was your oysters, Women's Realm, Women's Weekly, Women's Own, Woman, etc. So I started selling quite a few. And then I got an agent. She wrote to me. (laughs) Those were the days. Um, (laughs) He wrote to me via one of the magazines that she'd seen one of my stories. Could she take me out to lunch at the Cafe Royal in Regent Street? <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is it. Abandon the teaching career. Well, of course, it's not quite like that, as any writer will tell you. But nevertheless, it was great because she took me on and she I just sent her the stories. And not only did she have good contacts in the UK, but she sold a lot abroad. So I was then being translated into Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, Dutch, um, Australia, not in translation. Uh, and I saw quite a lot because she was she had this these connections abroad. And that went on for quite a few years. Um, if the length of stories varied, but about 2,500 to 3,000 words, then gradually the demands became more prescriptive. It was down to, oh, 1500 words oh it must be upbeat ending it must have this ingredient and this ingredient etc and then some of the magazines started to go online only um and a lot started to close so um yeah bella magazine as well the women's weekly supplements summer supplement 
winter supplement, these kinds of things. They were good markets for a while. But again, I began to want to write greater length. Um, so I started, was sort of into the 2000s, we're into the 21st century, uh, very early 21st century. I did an MA in creative writing at Winchester, uh, where I was now living, moved out of London. I'd have my son, um, life had moved on. And that really was the turning point for me for wanting to write at greater length. Um, I was still doing the short stories as well, but again, the markets were closing down. And then my agent retired. And I thought, ah, oh, this is it. This is the moment to start thinking more seriously about, about longer length fiction. My first novel took me a long time, years. <laughs> um, there's that feeling, can I even ever get to the end? And I kept on restarting, having different ideas, et cetera. But I did eventually finish it, but I didn't publish it. Um, and then I started a second novel. Uh, it's all a bit muddled because I then went back to my first novel. Um, and over the space of um, 10 years, I have written now three novels, which isn't huge, but I've published over the last six years because I kept on refining and changing. I've got a bit speedier. We're now down to two years between novels. <laughs> not exactly fast paced for these people who produce them every six months, but um, I think the nature of the novels I write and I edit and re-edit and re-edit again. And I am still doing bits of coaching, creative writing, bits of teaching English, bits of teaching drama on a freelance basis now I've completely left the conventional school teaching. Mm. But I'm I am a slow writer. I, I'm not one of these right, I'm gonna write five thousand words this morning before lunch. I, I can't do that. But I've just I've just been thinking there's a chance I could have read one of your stories because I remember in the eighties reading the short stories in the, my mum's magazines and I lo used to love them well and you could well have done yes <laughs> actually in fact I wrote under my birth name which is Wilson Judith Wilson I used to write under um Hayland is my sort of adopted novel writing name it's actually a family name but it's not the name I used to write the magazine short stories but yes if you picked up Women's Weekly every Women's week Trail, I used to read them <laughs> So, yeah, it's very possible. Cross paths, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. I think it's a shame, isn't it, that that sort of that part of the writing oh. industry has declined so much. Because well, I think I think it's true of all all the magazines are suffering. Yes. In fact, I, I was in contact with uh, someone I went to journalism school with, and she has featured. I mean, her her career has been around mm. the the women's weeklies. And she said that she's got to the point now, she's, what, 51 or something. She catch, There is nothing, there are no places for her work to go anymore. They're all shut. It's, it's tragic. So sad. It really is, because it was a great market. It really was. And at one stage I was, you know, every month I had something in a magazine uh, in the UK, let alone abroad. Um, but no, it's just disappeared. And now there's Women's Weekly, but you have to be taken on by them. And then they take it. They hold on to your stories is the other thing for about a year. So you can't sell it elsewhere. Uh, no, it's, it's it has disappeared as a market, which is very sad. Yes. But presumably the thirst is still there. I mean, in terms of these sort of stories, yes. or, you know, there's an audience for this stuff. Well, I'm sure there is. And actually, just last year, I produced just as an ebook, 
some of my revamped, I went through all my copies of my old magazines, the stories I had in there, and I reproduced just as an ebook under a different pseudonym, because I didn't want to confuse with my novels, Polly Dodd, some of those stories, because there are, and the people have read them. I said, oh, yes, sometimes I just want a quick sort of 10 minute over a cup of coffee, an easy story that's not going to tug too much at your heartstrings, but well written. That's always the criteria. You want it well written. Mm. Um, And yeah, I'm sure there is a market for them. But I don't know. It's not being served unless they buy my ebook. <laughs> of course, Polly Dodd is the <laughs> the number the prime for that. Yes, yes. I think it's 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 fascinating though. I mean, I, I I I I'm always fascinated by switching from shorter form to to longer form as a challenge because clearly, when you're writing those sort of you know with those sort of uh, prescriptive word counts, two thousand five hundred, three thousand, even less than that obviously yeah was the was the sort of move that you you've mentioned um that's one heck of a challenge to deliver you know mm-hmm. a a story that satisfies in that time and yet yes. when you're expanding into a, into a longer format like a novel then those challenges are suddenly taken away but at the same time that is a challenge in itself yeah. you haven't got those yes. restrictions it's about self discipline then absolutely And that was when I started writing my first novel, on the one hand, it was great because you could develop the characters, you could have their backstory, which you really haven't got time for a backstory, or it's got to be minimal or really majorly contribute to the main premise of the short story. So you could develop all that. But on the other hand, I remember getting to about halfway through and thinking, oh, my God. I've got all these characters. I've got to get them up there every day. Do I keep get their teeth cleaned? Do you know, have I got to get them dressed? You suddenly have this sort of weight of responsibility to the lives of your characters. And then, of course, you realise, well, no, think of what you read. You don't see these characters every single day. But And then there's that danger of sort of making a soggy middle of a novel. You're just treading water with it because you can't go from here to there to your sort of climax the way you can quickly with a short story. So, yeah, I mean, it swings some roundabouts. There's there's kind of great advantages to being able to write at length. Um, but there's also that sense of can I make the story last long enough, especially if you're not writing something with an obvious, if you're writing crime fiction and you've got to find out who done it, as it were, it's a little bit different. Well, the sort of thing I write where there is a sort of mystery, but it's more a mystery of sort of family secrets and this kind of thing. The actual plotting is quite hard, which is why I think I edit a re-edit a replan and go back to the beginning again constantly, because I'm not very good at planning everything ahead of time. I could with short stories. I write, okay, first paragraph's gonna be this, middle, uh, then it's gonna be this, then it's gonna be that, and my conclusion's that. But with a novel, I know how it's gonna begin and I know what's gonna happen and I know how it's gonna end, but I don't know how I'm gonna get there. Mm. And that's probably the the main difference from writing short stories, you know, your fixed length, where you've got to know, because you haven't got, you can't go many side routes to get there. No, because you run out of space. But I, exactly. I presume, exactly. I presume yeah. that when you were writing for magazines, I mean, you know, you were being paid by your output in the sense that you had to get some words down on a regular yeah. basis. And you knew also that some would, would land and some wouldn't. Yeah. And so... It's interesting that in 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 probably in that part of your career you were writing quite quickly and yes. having to be quite direct. But with novel yeah. writing, it's it's been a bit more of a meander. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I did. I mean, at one stage in the kind of, mm, I think in the 80s or early 90s, I was teaching four days a week and really writing on a Friday and producing a story. Friday and over the weekend, it was finished by the end of the weekend. I got an idea. Uh, yes, it had to come up. And yeah, there were, because there weren't great levels in these, and there weren't that many characters, you couldn't have too many characters, otherwise you're going to confuse your reader. Um, so I could write quite quickly then. And obviously I did it. But then you knew there wasn't any point in editing too much because it would end up getting edited and you knew they'd throw out the words. And I wasn't so precious about that. Once it had been accepted, I like to see it in the magazine. It's quite exciting going to Smith's and there it is. <laughs> if you got to Smith's before they sent you a copy. In those days, they used to send you a copy, which was nice. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Page, <laughs> yes. Um, but I wasn't so protective of it put it that way I got my check by then again the days of checks um and that was fine and I was on to the next one and I'd even probably forgotten what I've written in that story um but it, yeah it is different you are more precious about the amount of ridiculous amount of time you put into novel writing but um I don't have to do it <laughs> so. no no um, but that it, it's interesting that you know the the limitations that you've got in that format in terms of characterization, you've got to land characters quite quickly. It must be very difficult not to slip into just tropes um, yeah. and, and the cliche. Well, exactly. And to a certain extent, the magazines actually want cliches. Yeah, I was going to say. But I think what you can do is avoid the cliches in the style of writing. So even if your type is they want, I mean, they would say, oh, we want them to be this age range, preferably family. They weren't very keen on divorce at that time. It was slightly dodgy. It weren't very <laughs> extramarital affairs. We were really associated. Um, but, but, yeah, so I was willing to go along with that because they were going to pay me. But as I say, the quality of the writing still mattered. And as long as the cliches aren't in the language, that was okay. That so was I guess things like dialogue were, were crucial in that sense. Yeah. Quite a lot of dialogue, yes. And, um, I mean, it, yeah, you had to identify the style. I mean, it's actually a very good discipline when I think yeah. about it now. A, a very effective discipline, which I find I've sort of lost. I, I have done a bit of flash fiction, which gets you back to it. Um, and flash fiction almost reminds me of that that sense of having to, to find the character in the opening paragraph, otherwise you've lost interest. And they've always, all got to be fairly likeable. Mm. Um, Whereas they can't have so many sort of light and shade as the characters in your novels can. I mean, my most recent novel, there's a character who at the beginning, she's quite objectionable. And then I allow a little, you know, slightly warmer tones for her. But you haven't got time. They've either got to be nice or not so nice. Or they've got to quickly see er errors of their ways in, in the magazine stories, because basically they do want decent upright characters at least they did then I'm a little I think probably more so now but yes yeah, yeah. no I'm sure it's much more blurred now um yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I'm interested to know about your mindset when you went in to do your MA because you've you know you've been writing professionally and been commissioned and and, and read internationally and you're putting yourself back into an academic environment you've been teaching yes. in school that's quite a challenge, isn't it, to 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 open yourself up to a criticism yeah, and yeah. be a student, be a student <laughs> again. Yeah, and, and yeah. that must be hard. 
it was hard, but I love being a student. Somebody else is preparing the lessons. Even now, you know, I love going to somebody else. You think, oh, they've spent all evening, all weekend planning that. So that was great. And, you know, I'm, I'm this perpetual student. I love my notebooks and every writer does and the new pens, you know, and all this is before <laughs> iPads and all this rubbish, you know. So I love that aspect of it. I did it over two years. So it was, you know, part time because I was teaching and my son was young at the time. He was sort of six, seven when I started it. So it was lovely. My one evening, Monday evening, six till nine, <laughs> of, like, going to the library again. I loved all that part. Being criticised, yes, I had to learn to take criticism. And that was actually possibly the thing I gained mostly because it taught me to be far more self-critical. Um, it really did. Because with the magazines, Ideal Story was accepted or not. And that was it. They were either going to take it because it suited what they wanted that month or week or they didn't. So you all, you didn't really feel your integrity as a writer was being questioned. It was just the market didn't suit the market. And actually, it was great because I did become so much more self-critical, willing to write 6,000 words and then tear them up and start from the beginning, things like that, which even with the story, I wasn't. Once I'd written 1,500, I'd keep going, you know. Um, that was that was great. And I did learn so much. In a way, people say you can't teach anyone to write. And no, you can't. But I think it's the whole experience of realising. I remember after the first session or two thinking this is fantastic I'm in a room with people who for three hours just think writing is the most important thing <laughs> that, that they're doing with their week you know apart from loving their children and all that stuff and so it was that sense of of you were allowed to believe in what you were doing there were people were taking it seriously and they wanted to sit down you know the tutors were wanting to sit down for an hour with you and discuss how you could improve the piece of writing and that was that was really precious. And as I say, it, it did me a great deal of good of learning to be very, very hard on myself and far more self-critical. Um, it took me a very long you know, two years step, but it took me a very long time to finish my dissertation. I have to say, I didn't do that in two years because that was 20,000 words. And as I say, my son was, was young and I was working full time. Um, but when I eventually did it, that sense of somebody saying, lovely things about it and saying it was the first 20,000 words of a novel and the comment at the end was this is really worth pursuing so that was great the accolade from that and I, I got a distinction so that was very Yay. exciting and did you pursue it is that one of your novels or I did it's actually ended up being my second novel curiously enough uh, because I just felt I was too close to it and I put it aside and actually I think it gained in that because I did go but it became my second novel yeah so that was the legacy of Mr Jarvis which was a different name from the dissertation but yeah that that was that sense that somebody thinks I'm worth reading was was great was was from published authors that was lovely oh that is fantastic and uh, I I admire anybody who goes back into education I, I mean to be honest it's funny because you know when you were talking about new pens it reminded me I had a dream last night that we we'd moved to the south coast yeah and we were living and we had um, Hobeck, Hobeck was based next to a stationery shop and it was like our, oh heaven so we've got the beach and we've got a stationery shop it couldn't get, get any better really. yeah so oh. I also did an MA I did um fine art <laughs> oh fantastic yes um, yeah. similar situation children were fairly young when I started so it was that sort of juggling but the, the joy yes. of being in a room with no distractions, with somebody who yes. wants to talk about art. <laughs> yes, it, it takes you seriously in what you're doing. I know, it was it was fantastic. 
really, really good. No, very precious time. Yes. Absolutely. And so you're, we've actually touched on this a number of times in this interview, talking about your uh, self-critical um, mm. approach and re-editing. Uh, do you ever get frustrated with yourself to say, yeah. look, it's good enough, leave it? Uh, does that, yourself does, off does that get to a point? Does, well, does a book get abandoned in your world um, rather than finished, if you know what I mean? I think I think you always feel that. I always think you have inside you, before you start, the idea of the book, this is going to be better than anything I've ever done. <laughs> and when you get to the end and you go back and you go back, it's never quite as good as you hoped it would be. But you get to the point, in fact, I'm at that point now with, with my fourth novel. And just this morning, just before we started this interview, I've got to the end of what really I think should be my final edit because I actually finished it quite a while ago. I mean, like September. And I've gone back and gone back and gone back and cut. I've cut now 7,000 words. And I don't think I can cut much more. And I think I'm just doing one more read through, but try and skim through it. And then I've got to think enough is enough. Because I don't think you ever, it isn't ever finished. And once my novels are out there in paper form, I can't look at them because mm. I know as soon as I do, I will be, oh God, that's not the right word. It's a better word than that. And I do agonize over words. And the voice inside me is thinking, the reader might even skip over this sentence because you know how you do stop to yourself. I want to get to the end of the chapter before I turn out the light, go to sleep. And you think, but it's got to be as good as it can be at that moment yeah you've got to feel yourself haven't you that it's as good yeah. as you could get it but it is it is difficult to know that point I think a lot of um, writers struggle to know when to stop and put the pen down <laughs> and it is very difficult and I don't think you're ever absolutely sure but I think when I was getting to the end just the last few days knowing I was just about to this bank holiday we've got three bank holidays so now I'm going to try and get it finished this bank holiday um I think I need to leave these characters. I'm getting the slightest bit tired of these characters. I want some new ones. And I think that's the point when, if you think, oh, I've got to do it again, and thinking, and, and you know, rather than thinking, I want to look at it again, I want to make sure that all ties up. I mean, I will then send it off to an editor who will then pick me up on things. But I think I've got to the point somebody else, somebody else's eyes now need to be on it. I think I'm going to yeah, try and send I, it off. I totally understand that. Yeah. I, <laughs> It's in terms of those characters. Uh, I, I was listening to an interview you have done previously, and, and it, it, you have a very rich um, appreciation of how to make characters work and uh, to develop their motivations and how those rub against each other. Uh, is, is the sense I got anyway? Yeah. It, how, mu how much of the process of, of your writing is built around building in your head those characters? Everything, really. Yeah, my novels are character driven and I, I start with characters and what happens to them. That That's always it's characters first, plot second. I mean, obviously, there's a plot. Uh, they're not just character descriptions, but it's the importance and the vividness of the characters. I suppose it's I think you tend to write what you like reading yourself, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and if I can't believe in a character, don't feel they're well rounded, I'm probably going to give up on the novel. And if I don't find something, I don't have to like the characters, but I've got to find them interesting, their motivation, why they behave or why they think they can behave as they do. So, yes, I mean, each novel has started with a character or an idea. 
apart from possibly my second novel was about, well, it's still character-based, but it was about something, a story I'd heard about somebody years and years before, and that story had never left me, but it was still driven by a character. And certainly my most recent one, I remember seeing this woman a few years ago now, three years ago, I was on a bus going to Islington to meet my son where he was working at the time. And I looked out of the bus and there was this woman standing at the bus stop. And I remember thinking, oh, she's going to be the character, my principal character, my next novel. It just sort of came to me like that. And then I built from there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea there's this woman wandering around. I have no yeah. idea. She's no in a book. No idea. Her fame. <laughs> exactly. It's very, it's interesting because that comment just triggers some memory that I, I was watching a documentary some years ago. And this was Pete Townsend of The Who playing guitar as a guest of Mick Jagger on his whatever solo album. Yeah. And they were having this conversation. And uh, Pete Townsend says, yeah, I take the district line, because they were living in Richmond, the both of them at the time. I take the district line occasionally. It's really good to see real people. If, if very inspiring, you should try it, Mick. And this thing, you're thinking Mick Jagger sitting on the district line. <laughs> the district line. <laughs> but, no, he might do. But there's someone who's massively creative. And yes, probably if he puts a beanie hat on, he'd probably be able to hide uh, Pete Townsend. That's interesting, because I was on the district line a lot yesterday. I didn't see him. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I think they're on tour at the moment. But, oh, that's uh, the screen I was. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. um it, it, it is something that i miss because we live in sticks and there's no public well, you transport. miss the district line no well i miss i miss public <laughs> transport because it is a fascinating yeah. there thing are buses. i can just get on a bus well yeah yeah, yeah but that's not great really are there i mean you know these are buses yeah. to telford yeah a bus to, you <laughs> could get on the bus to telford you see some life you on that bus like you live in, in telford yes yeah no i agree i mean it's just the people watching which i love and overhearing conversations you know oh, yeah. I'm terrible. Oh, I, I used to keep a notebook and i used yes. to make notes of people's conversations because they were fascinating yes. <laughs> i was on the train the other day going up to london and these two people were talking um and he was going to gatwick and was talking about difficulty or or not sure where to get off and which platform the train would be at to get from Clapham to Gatwick. And I found myself starting to tell him. And then I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm not supposed to be listening. Just because I know which platform. I think it, and I turned it into a sort of cough because they were sort of sitting just down from me. But I heard everything. You know? But you do have to suddenly think, I'm not supposed to know about their life and the fact that his wife is spending her weekend in Scotland while he's going off to Switzerland to ski. You know. But yeah, you do gain a lot. Um, yeah. Public transport's good for that. It oh. is like breaking the fourth wall, isn't yeah. it? If you interrupt a conversation yeah. like that, I always, I, I sometimes do it too. Recently, when we were on holiday, so there was a couple, there was a woman, two women at a table um, near us. We were in a cafe in um, Rye in Sussex, and she'd just lost her uh, father, I think it was. And she was telling the other woman about how, you know, the, yeah. the sort of funeral arrangements and the grieving and yeah. then all this stuff came out about her childhood and I was sat there thinking oh my god yes exactly <laughs> yeah. that would have been perfect for a book you know Absolutely. That story. yeah yeah take notes uh, yeah completely well funnily enough I was I think I just I've got to the age where I'll just talk, start talking to people I mean you're never going to see them again so if they think you're a nutter it doesn't matter but I was in a shop yesterday and there was this woman older woman clearly and she was with about 15 16 year old who kept saying oh granny that you look lovely in that coat she was in Zara she was trying all these coats on and the grandma was saying I'm not sure whatever she said no no it's lovely it's lovely and I just 
tapped the woman on the shoulder and said, you're so lucky to have a lovely granddaughter like that, aren't you? And the woman said, oh, thank you so much. Of course, the 16-year-old granddaughter looked at me with loathing as if, how, you know, you don't speak to strangers like that. Yeah. Why not talk to me? You know, then I moved on. But we've got this kind of sense of you mustn't talk to anybody. And actually, most people of a certain age quite like it. It's yeah. only if you're you know, under 20, you probably, why are you talking to me? So, yeah, I, I would do it. I mean, not probably asking about her late father, but you could <laughs> pick up the material and use it, which is yeah. great. Yes. Totally. I mean, I do it all the time. And I've, my three boys, so they're, uh, let me think, 19, 17 and 13. And they always go, oh, why did you talk to the person at the till? Exactly. exactly. You're imitating my son who's now 28. He'd be just so yes. Yeah. Well, in fairness to your youngest boy, he's learned the trick that I've taught him, yeah. which is to read people's name badges if they're wearing them at the supermarket or in boots or whatever. He doesn't go, oh, Sandra, thanks. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Peer at her like. uh, and thank them by name because that will make their day every <laughs> single time absolutely and actually I have to say I'm saying that with my son but he's great with people and he has to be very good with clients in his job so maybe maybe my sort of curiosity about people he's picked up on we hope they learn like to think so yeah in terms of teaching writing then um what are the things that you see most often that what are the sort of beginner errors if that's the right way of putting it. all the the, yeah. the you know when someone's embarking uh, we get a lot of submissions so this is actually something i need to focus on later today is to get into our submissions pile and you can see the difference very very quickly between someone who thinks they're writing what publishers want to read mm-hmm. and actually writing something with x factor quality something different yeah so so what what, what would you say i mean in all your experience of teaching english where, where, where do people go wrong, do you think? I think one of the first things they go wrong is trying to imitate a writer they like. They think, oh, this writer is selling millions. They're the bestseller of this, that and the other. I'll try and write like them. Um, it's that cliche of finding your own voice. But I think that is true. I think it's the hardest thing in the world, criticising, especially adults, or trying constructive criticism, because we are very protective of everything we write. It is, after all, you know, our souls there on the page. It is hard. But that, I think, is is the number one error. Seeing their goal of selling millions for a start and thinking, how does that, you know, how do they write? I'll imitate their style. I think one of the kind of more functional things people often get wrong is is point of view. Writing from all sorts of point of view, points of view, and confusing them. That's kind of a, that's easier to correct and easier to point out because it doesn't feel quite so personal. And I do think sometimes people just haven't read. I think I often say to people, when you're reading, you say, do you read a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read a lot. Do you read as a writer? What works and why is it working? Why do you enjoy that novel so much? What do you admire in it? Not because you're going to try and copy it, but what is the quality that that writer has that you want to aim for in your own voice, in your own tone? Um, so it's a mixture. Copying, imitation is, is the number one error, I think, when somebody starts. Um, point of view. And then sometimes just, and I know I'm guilty of this, and I edited out, saying the same thing several times. Mm. <laughs> I'm trying to say, you only need to say it once. Um, 
the reader doesn't need to know everything. And obviously, it's the other cliche thing of show, don't tell. Okay, some of the things you do have to tell, but you don't have to keep telling. And if you can show, the t rather than saying the clock's hand moved to whatever, he heard the clock chime or whatever it happens to be, or uh, that that's, yeah, the show not tell is, is a big one. But I do think you have to be incredibly sensitive and delicate, I find. Um, the first class I did with adults, it's easier with younger ones. You feel that sense of authority. I'm many years older than you. I've lived longer than you. But when you're teaching adults and they are, understandably, it's it's very, you've got to be very delicate. So it's, it is often thinking, is this really how you want to write? Why do you write for a start? I think people should go back to that. Yeah, you want to tell a story. Why do you like telling stories? Um, and I always say, when people say, why do I write? I'll often say, because I want to understand. I want to understand people. I want to understand emotions. I want to understand why I react to things the way I do. Um, and the longer you've been alive, my novels are all set, set in the recent past, well, recent to me, my last novel. This one I'm writing now is set in 1983, and I like looking back. So there is a need to understand. And I think if people sort out why they're writing, um, not to be like another writer, if they say they're writing to make money, well, forget it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very yeah. few make huge amounts. So that's the first lesson um, I would say to a new class. If you think you're writing to write, I mean, they might be lucky. They might be the very one. It's a bit like acting. It's like any artist, mm. painting, music. Um, you're doing it because, not because you want to, because you have to. But your day feels better if you've written. So sorting out priorities. Why are you writing? Not because you want to write like somebody else, but because you feel you have to write. And then what sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm waffling a little bit here, but as I say, not copying, finding what your point of view is, that's kind of more structural. And then yeah. you feel happy writing. Don't think crime is selling really well at the moment. I'd better write crime. Um, because if you don't read crime and you don't love reading crime and you don't love writing it it's going to be completely hopeless and mm -hmm. I think that's often what trips people up writing what they think is selling which would be lovely if you could do it well but it it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make for a good book no but there's a lot of people out there saying that that's exactly what you should do you write to market and you if you want to make money though yeah and well yeah, you know yeah. but this is this is the whole side of the industry which is doing nobody any favors frankly apart from the people who are propagating this i guess yeah yeah i think so this writing to market i mean it would be great if we could do it well but the trouble is and also the market moves on all the time mm. you mm. write, by the time you've written it it'd be something different <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah, I just, I'm sure it's the same if you write for TV or whatever. I mean, I, I can't write scripts, so I don't know how script writers approach it. Um, you would have to be incredibly clever, incredibly versatile and very swift if you could write to market, I think. Um, and you probably still need huge amounts of help. I mean, I know there are writers who try and write to market and they work with an editor and they go chapter by chapter. They send their first chapter. Editor says, well, make these changes, make these changes, send it back. Well, it's, it's a different kind of writing. Um, yeah, I couldn't do it, but I don't know. There probably are some people successfully doing it out there, so I'm not decrying it. Great. They're lucky if they can do it and make a lot of money out of it, but it's not something you just set out to do, I don't think. You're no. lucky 
if what you write happens to hit the market at that moment. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of luck involved, isn't there? A lot well, of- I think that's yeah. with all creative aspects. And mm-hmm. I think that anybody who thinks that there's a formula, which a lot of people do put, put books out there saying this is the formula uh, mm-hmm. and courses. People like yeah, formula, exactly. though, don't they? Well, they do tick box, and we are a little bit in that era in education as well. I'd say, you know, teaching this, teaching this, teaching that. Tell them to put that down, and then they'll get a top grade. But yeah, it's not a way to. It's not a way to do something you love. No. I can't, anyway. Well, my, so my middle son, I was actually talking to him. He's doing A levels at the moment, and I said he reads a lot. He reads a, a book a week or two books a week sometimes. And I said, do you ever wish you did English? Cause he did yeah. history, economics, politics, and art. And he said, well, yes, kind of, but I don't think I could cope with all the the, the other stuff that you have to do yeah. in order to pass the exam. I just want to read books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. The, the analysis, it's a bit like, I mean, I love doing an English degree, but I have to say, I loved the, the one area I hated criticizing was poetry. I love poetry, but I don't want to pull it to pieces. No. Um, I don't mind pulling novels to pieces, actually, funny enough, and carry, And I think that was very helpful, but not poetry. I just want to sit there and wallow in it. Mm. I don't want to say why this metaphor works. You know, it speaks to me. Uh, <laughs> you're right. And sadly, exams have got so much more prescriptive and I can't see them changing anytime soon. No, no. I, I fear that's right. Now, Jude, behind you, you have your wonderful bookshelf, um, bookshelves. Um, I'm interested to know which of the books there has been the most influential on you. Well, the writers I love, uh, I mean, I, you know, 19th century writers I love, George Eliot, Jane Austen, all, all that stuff, as it were, which I have taught, Thomas Hardy. But the contemporary writers I love writing all, well, actually I should use modern and contemporary. I should use that because these people get older. Um, Penelope Lively. Um, Anita Bruckner, more contemporary, um, Anna Quinlan, uh, Carol Shields, a lot of American writers, actually, um, Anne Tyler, mm. uh, Margaret Forster. Um, they're the names which are springing to mind really quickly. They're the sort of novels that I love reading. I have just finished Claire Keegan, who, to me, read this I've yesterday. Read it, I've oh, read it. It's great, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. I have to say, she's the sort of writer, I read that and think, why do I even bother trying? (laughs) I read that on the train to London yesterday, on the district line, and on the train home. Yeah, Um, it's a quick read, but it's so powerful. And that's what I like in a short book. You know, I don't don't particularly like reading 500-page epics. No, no. I would rather read something like that that you read, like you say, in a day, and then it doesn't leave you because you're so... I woke up, yeah, I woke up with it this morning. I mean, just the writing is just so wonderful. Um, but yes, those are the sort of writers. I mean, after this, I should think of a hundred more, but <laughs> the kind of, you know, in the, in the and I mean, I didn't mention any male writers, and I do, there's a huge number of, you know, Ian McEwan, obviously. Um, oh, I've forgotten. I have to look at their names, but um, <laughs> a lot, a lot. William Boyd, um, yeah. So yeah. that kind of novel, I mm. suppose, character-driven. They're good storytellers, aren't they? And very like you say, characters are very memorable characters. Storytellers, um, and I'm not good at reading. I shouldn't say I'm not good at reading. I'm not very keen on novels without punctuation, novels which are too experimental. Um, mm. 
I mean, obviously I read James Joyce and all that stuff back then, which now wouldn't seem experimental compared with some of the novels out there. I don't like gimmicks. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't like novels which to me feel gimmicky. Um, but that's just me. I do like, I like sentences and inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I'm very fond, fond of those too. Uh, and if there's one book in terms of the process that you go back to, is there one, the one that you, you the, the creative process, the writing process? What, like a how-to? Uh, yeah, not so much a, yeah, yeah, something like that, I guess. Well, I did read all those how-to books uh, when I was doing my degree and one written by Amanda and her surname is eluding me and she was my tutor and I, that's terrible. It's an unusual surname. But I can remember one of the most useful things she said in it, which has never left me, is start your novel, leave the first chapter, write the second chapter, then go back and see if you even need that first chapter. Mm. Sometimes, and I've never forgotten that. And that was the most useful lesson I learned from, from her book, which I think was called with a very unusual title of writing a novel. I do believe it's in the house somewhere, but I won't go off and look for it. Um, I think I think it was called Writing a Novel, and it came out about the time I was doing my dissertation. And I certainly found that very useful because I do think it's true that we often start and then realise we don't need all that stuff, or we might need it later, mm. but it's not a good hook at the start. Um, so that's that was a lesson. I did read all the names which now elude me because uh, I had to quote them in my dissertation. And they, they were useful. <laughs> some of those American tones. I mean, I wasn't so keen on the sort of French philosophical uh, postmodern ideas about this, that and the other. Just the practical ideas, things like that. Where Decide where the start of your story really is. There's no need to start it ages before. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Right. I think we have reached the point where, um... well, I mean, it's pressure on everybody, really. Um... Hey, you always pick it up like that. It's really not that big a deal. I, 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 I beg to differ. Anyway, I will give it the, I'll give it the big vocal build up. <clears throat> you have. Rebecca's random question. We've been watching MasterChef. <laughs> I have seen some of them. So I would like to know, what is the poshest thing you've ever eaten and did you enjoy it? Oh. That's a great question. Probably, uh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I am not hugely good at posh food. I love food. I think the poshest thing were oysters. And I thought, what a waste of money. (laughs) Very chewy. Um, I mean, why bother? Have squid instead. Um, and I've had lobster. That's again probably the poshest quite a while ago. But I would rather be at a Cretan Taverna on the beach eating a really good plate of the best sea bream ever because it was swimming that morning. This is going to be horrific to people who don't eat anything which breathes or moves but um or a good plate of chicken souvlaki watching the mediterranean there it's the setting as much as the food Mm. but probably lobster is the most or i remember going back talking ages ago to the 90s when cuisine or 80s when cuisine mansur when you had a huge plate with the smallest bit of food ever beautifully arranged (laughs) and you ate it and received a huge bill and went home starving hungry and opened the fridge and had a cheese sandwich um (laughs) so I'm not very good at posh food but yes I have had lobster I have had oysters which I wouldn't bother to have them again and Mm -hmm. I had snails once 
I only had them because I didn't realize what they were. Somebody actually said, taste this with your eyes closed. And I said, oh, it's like a spicy mushroom. What's was it? And he then said, oh, it was a snail. I was like, oh, forget it. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're, you absolutely would not touch any of those well, items, would you? I have tried an oyster and it was in Japan. And I remember thinking, why would you want to eat that? It tastes yeah. horrible. Exactly. It feels exactly. horrible. Yeah, yeah. And it exactly. lives in a shell. It should be living in its shell. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, the sensation of the in was not great. I mean, give me a plate of vegetables any day. I mean, I am not vegan by any means because I love cheese <laughs> and milk in my cappuccino. Um, but you know, no. And also, even when I'm eating fish, I'd rather not see that it looked like a fish. That's terrible to say, but you know what I mean. I'm the same. I say to him, I'll eat anything as long as it's not slimy, has yeah. tentacles or eyes. Exactly. exactly. If it's a nice. <laughs> Cod in a sauce that uh, will do me. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I no, I, I, because I, you spend quite a lot of time in Crete, don't you? So, yes. um, which is wonderful. And uh, there is something about eating at a Greek taverna which elevates anything <laughs> in that environment, and the taste well, is just much better. Funny enough, talking about MasterChef, uh, last summer we were at a taverna in a seaside resort near our house. We have a family house there, and. Oh, what's his his name? One of the judges from MasterChef was sitting there eating. Oh, is did he have hair or was he the bald one? He's the one with a very attractive wife because she was. Oh yeah, that's John Uh, Tarot, who's married to Lisa Faulkner. That's the one. That was the cover because my sister and I were getting up. We think it's we're getting on our phone. You can imagine, you know, trying to. Our our sons were with us at the time, getting hugely embarrassed. Goodness sake, put your phones (laughs) around. He can probably see that you're googling to make sure it's him. But he was eating at the same taverna as us, and he went back another night. So obviously, oh, that's great sign, yeah, eating. yeah. He was actually eating a, a meat at the time, a sort of large steak, which my <laughs> son went on to order. I think it was the most expensive thing on the menu. But yes, so there you are. He obviously uh, recommends, you know, by by his um, patronage of the place. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, he's always famous for going. Now, I understand, you know, sort of, but yogurt with such and such? <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing was that we then spoke to the owner of the taverna when we left. He spoke with English and we said, do you realize who that was? He's very famous in England. And he said, well, only because people have told me. But he said he came in a week ago and asked for a table. I didn't know who he was. So I told him I had to send him away. I said, no, you have to go somewhere else. It's probably the first time he's ever been turned away from, from a taverna. Yeah, I, from, I know, so. from a restaurant, because, yeah, That's most right. restaurants would be like, yes, come exactly. in, here's my the nice yeah. produce. He went back. Several times after, and always oh, fantastic. The well, there you go. Good. That's it. That, and what's the poshest thing you've ever eaten? Oh, you've eaten a lot of posh stuff. Uh, he likes lobsters and things like that. Yeah, look, I think um, I think the, mem- the most memorable posh meal I ever had is I flew to France with a mate of mine we, when we were younger in our twenties, both working at the BBC, and he said we can get on the Ryanair flight to Biarritz for about five quid or whatever it was in those days. And he said, I booked us into a Michelin star restaurant in beer in uh, uh, Bayonne or somewhere. Yeah. If that makes sense. And it was amazing. And it was the first time I had ever had foie gras, which obviously is very evil, but <laughs> it is, it was life changingly rich and yeah. just delicious. I mean, you know, it just blew my mind actually to have that. Yeah. And that's where they make it most. So yeah, yes. you do was, like that stuff, don't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do. So that 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 meal was particularly memorable. I've probably eaten in posher 
places occasionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But in terms of landing taste, it was just magnificent. But then posh and taste aren't necessarily together, are they? No. no. You can have no. a really good middle level meal that's much nicer than little itty bits on the plate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I want to feel I've eaten. I don't, you know, I just, I don't like things which are sort of, I arranged too beautifully because as soon as you put your fork in, you're going to spoil that picture anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah. I with the pudding, you know, and that's quite nice to look at the plate. But all this taking photographs and putting them on Instagram, I just eat it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think the definition really for posh is is not so much what the food is as the environment and the way oh, that the attitude of the people that you're around. Completely, absolutely. It is. So if you go yeah. to I don't know. Um, I have eaten at Gordon Ramsay's uh, Chelsea restaurant, the, the the one that has the three stars and is, you know, regarded as one of the best in London. And there, it is. It is very much the city banker types turning up and buying a bottle of Petrus for fourteen grand. Um, and when I asked for the house white, it was like, <laughs> you what? Right, right, yeah. I think there's part of me that always thinks think what I could have done with this money mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is you know I could buy something that I could look at every day <laughs> mm. um, so uh, but yeah the experience is it's those little details I mean just some restaurants that just do it well and uh, if you go out for a special birthday or something it's lovely to have an occasion and you're willing to spend a bit more for mm. that just for the that awful word ambiance and and <laughs> Yeah, not sort of groveling at you, and is that all right? Is that all right? But just, just judging the situation, right? Yeah, Absolutely. that's what you pay. Well, I think that's a good place to leave. Yeah, it's when... almost time to have a posh lunch. Sandwich. Meet it. Spoilers. Judith, it's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you, and uh, we're very grateful. Where can people find you online? Well, uh, I've got a website, and I'm on Amazon, so. Uh, uk. if you just put Jude Hayland into Google you should come up with my website and it, it books for sale on Amazon both as ebooks and real concrete actual books um, <laughs> yeah so it's pretty, pretty easy to find me there thank you so much for your time thank you very much as well it's been great talking have a lovely long bank holiday weekend really enjoyed that interview really really did and uh, let's think ahead to our next guest yeah so we're talking to um a writer called matt adcock this week coming yeah and for next week's podcast he is uh, an author in the cyberpunk genre i know and i don't really and... know what that is well we're going to find out then aren't we i when i think of cyberpunk i think of those people who go to Festivals like the one we've just been to, the Norbury Canal Festival. We have been to the Norbury Canal like Festival. With like dark clothes, but lots of sort of shiny belly things. And they're cyber somethings, aren't they? Uh, I don't know. Is that steampunk? <laughs> steampunk, that's what I'm thinking of. Yes, you are, yeah. Well, oh, no, is think, that different? <laughs> no, I mean, a steampunk environment would be, you know, if you're living on a narrowboat or something like that, there's a bit of that, but there's a lot of folky thing there and there's lots of sort of fairy art going on as well. And, and it was it's a, a lovely festival. It's just across the field from where we are. That field now chewed up all the car parking, unfortunately. <laughs> so the cows won't have that back this summer. Um but um, no, it was it was delightful. But Matt is joining us for this next show. So again, it's an opportunity. We've we've spoken to all sorts of people from different uh, areas of writing, 
and it's always a fascinating, you know, just lifting the shutters on yeah. a different side of it. So we look forward to speaking to and him. And we're gaining so many friends. I feel like I've got so many new friends now for the, from the last... Well, yeah, the way I look at it. Years. Yeah, absolutely. We go to a certain festival, we've got a lot of drinks to buy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you see, you look at it in a very negative way. No, I, no, no, I, no, I see no. it as no, no, we're going to get bought lots of drinks. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. Um, that's lovely. Uh, we ought to congratulate uh, Robert Dawes, uh, Uncle Bob, for completing his UK tour of Woodhouse in Wonderland. That You remember we went to see him at Theatre 7 in Shrewsbury. Uh, which is quite early in the run, and now several months later, he's just finished, isn't he? He's just finished, and his final run of dates, I think it was in York and Yeovil. Yeovil was the last one I saw. Yeah, um, uh, and actually, uh, a very um, interesting person was in the audience at the Yeovil one. Oh, really? Yes. Um, so the great grandson of uh, Woodhouse himself. Oh, wow! Well, that's fantastic, and. The tour, from what I've seen, has gathered momentum and more and more, you know, the ticket sales going up and up. So congratulations, Bob. I know it's a labour of love. And, and to William Humble as well. And William Humble and indeed the whole team behind it. Because, wow, I mean, a one-man show. Um, quite demanding show. Yes. I, I and mean, very moving and very funny. Yeah, so, we loved it. And, yeah. and we took two, two of the boys, and they didn't know much about P.G. Woodhouse either um, at all. So, you know, and they got a lot out of it. They loved it. Yeah, they did. They did indeed. We ought to um, flag up that we've got one of our books at 99p this week. We do. Blood Notes by Lynn Laversha, which is the first in the Steph Grant murder mystery series, is 99p and 99 cents for one week only. So if you haven't read it yet, absolutely brilliant book. I loved it. Um, we both loved it on submission, didn't we? Mm. Because it's got it's got a stinger of an opener. Oh, yeah. I mean, arguably the best opener of any of the oh, books. Oh, totally. I just you know just jaw dropping. And uh, my favourite dog in that series, Derek the dog. Yeah. And um, yes, I just had the the privilege of feeding back on the first draft of or whatever draft it was of the latest, the fourth book in yeah, the series. Yeah, the fourth book. So that's... blood ribbons, which uh, part of which takes on a, a veteran's trip to Arnhem where I've just been watching a bridge too far to sort of remind myself what happened in Operation Market Garden in 1944 in September. Um, but yeah, terrific book too. And uh, we are delighted to present you with an opportunity to get it for 99p. So that's uh, Blood Notes, the opening book in that series. Uh, we've got lots, as ever, on our <laughs> plates. You have a myriad of freelance jobs on top of the, the Hobeck work. I'm focusing on one or two other aspects of the Hobeck thing, not least going through our submissions pile. And we're actually making good progress. I mean, you're almost halfway on the first. So we have sort of two posts, don't we? We have the, is it worthy of full manuscript? And then, obviously, yeah. a full so, manuscript to and, offer. Uh, and look, it's wonderful to get so many good submissions because I think it's running at about a 60-40 ratio of, of yeses. Let's see the whole manuscript to, to nose. Um, I mean, it's obviously easier to write a yes, let's see the whole manuscript email than it is for you to... And I will find a few points that I found, you know, that needed uh, challenging, I suppose, over people we say no to so by way of feedback. And that's much harder to write. And I know it's very disappointing for people, but we are enormously grateful when people send in. And I have read, you know, the last couple of days, I've read some stonkers, mm. absolute stonkers. Um, 
for US audiences, that's a positive thing. Um, and I don't know. What's the stonker then? I don't know, really. I suppose it's, you know, they're supposed to, uh, it's a phrase we used to use at university a bit. Or at least my group did. I was going to say, I don't remember. A stonking stonker. great read. Oh, okay. I suppose it's a bit dated, isn't it? Stonking great read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a bit. Um, but they've been fantastic. Some yeah, of them. And, you know, so... and, I just, and actually, I want to read the whole thing because I was totally drawn in in the first three chapters or 5,000 words. I think I think out of the pile that you've read over the last few days, there's quite a lot you've read. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's about four or five people I need to email to get the full manuscript. Oh, some just, you know, with me now, and I'm thinking, God, these are good. Yeah. It's wonderful. It is. It's great. I mean, we, we were overwhelmed, but in a really positive way. It was wonderful to get such a response to Absolutely. our call out. Absolutely. I'm back in my studio recording, uh, working on certain elements of our next big 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 production for Hobeck which is Silence the audio which we did a large chunk of last year but we haven't quite finished it yet yeah, but so I've got a lot of work on that um, but it's good to be just keeping that ticking along yes and uh, we've got a few meetings this week as well oh we have yeah. we've got bank holiday tomorrow yeah and so. next week the coronation mm. what do you mean mm. <laughs> we're actually going to London the day after the coronation which seems that after the Lord Mayor's show but we're meeting up some of my oldest friends again Sort of it turns into an annual thing that we gather together. Yes, it's nice. And break bread together. I like your friends. Yeah, they're good. They're good. I like it because I can talk about you with them, and it's fun. You can, yeah, you can slag <laughs> me off. And I love hearing the stories. As they do come out with the same stories. Um, so about the time one of your friends drank so much he spoke French. That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, there's something about a car going round in circles in someone's drive or something. We used to go round. <laughs> yeah. <I don't> know. <laughs> So the village is called Great Shelford, and it's it's where my ex-parents-in-law live. And there's a house which has a tree in the middle of the driveway. It's uh, If you listen to this, the people who live at the Peacocks uh, near the church in Great Shelford, um, we, uh, it was us. We used to drive around in a Nissan Micra around the circular drive, around their tree, and then re-emerge at sort of 12 at night after being at the pub. Um, and we did this. We call it the Mystic Tree. And uh, we did this... Every time we went out, because my friend Marcus lived in Great Shelford, so we'd have to take him home. And sometimes the driver wouldn't do the circuit. He would throw us out of the car, and we'd have to run round it and try and have been <laughs> caught. But the security lights would come on and all this sort of thing. So. And there's something about naked da- uh, naked running around in, in some hot country or something? Yeah. Um, that's a different group of friends. Oh. <laughs> but that, that's for another time. It is true. I did run around naked in France. Oh, uh, France, was it? Yeah, singing the German national That's anthem. That's it. That's the one. There's that different group of friends. Okay. I get these stories. It was all a mixed forfeit. Up. We were playing strip poker. And that was my <laughs> final forfeit, having been completely stripped naked by that point. So uh, I'll leave you with that marvellous image. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Take a look at our website, of course, www.hobeck.net. Details of all our books and our audiobooks and our authors and everything that's going on. Uh, we must put some fresh material on there. We haven't done it for a bit. And. Uh, I'd just like to thank you for joining us and don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast Book Show. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. My name's been Adrian Hobart. My name's still Rebecca Collins. And we would like to wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. 
don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Thank you.